Who is the most underrated actor of all time? It's Dolph Lundgren. Correct. Why? Well, because of his uh, spiky hair, yep. his ice-cold demeanor, and his big muscles. Absolutely. I must break you. Welcome to I Must Break This Podcast. This is the fan podcast celebrating the cinematic career of action legend Dolph Lundgren. Hello and welcome back to I Must Break This Podcast, the fan podcast that takes an in-depth and chronological look at the films of action star Dolph Lundgren. Today we're going back to 2000 and discussing the post-apocalyptic religious action comedy, uh, The Last Patrol, retitled The Last Warrior upon its American release. In this tonally weird hybrid of genres, Lundgren plays Nick Preston, an army captain who, along with a ragtag band of survivors, strives to make sense of a wasteland of a world after a massive earthquake destroys California. Biggest earthquake. Hundreds of millions have been killed. In the ocean. California is now an island. Cities have been destroyed. California is gone, and a new order has begun. In the aftermath of destruction... There is nothing there. Yes, there is. In a world without laws... Prison? They survived. Are you with me? They are humanity's only hope. You're not in charge anymore. Wait about seven minutes. There will be. Well, what are you gonna do? Just stroll up and ring the bell? One last mission. Come on! One last hero. One last chance. Go! Dolph Lundgren. The Last Warrior. I'm your host, Sean Malloy, and with me today to discuss this one is David Rosen, host of the Piecing It Together podcast. David, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on, man. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I'm glad to be doing an episode that can be described with the word ragtag group of whatever you just said. That was great. Well, this is uh, <laughs> when when you and I first uh, uh, got in contact and first started talking. I remember, I distinctly remember. I don't know if think you, I don't know if you remember saying this or not, but I remember you said uh, you said, "Well, what what do you have coming up? What would you like to discuss?" And I kind of gave you a, a crop of films. And I said, well, there's this uh, there's this little film that he did in 2000 called The Last Warrior. And I distinctly remember you said, well, if you're at the year 2000, I guess all the good ones have been taken. So <laughs> so uh, so I really appreciate you coming on to discuss this one, because I will tell you right now, I honestly did not, you know, line you up with this one because I was like, all right, well, what, what do I have in the can? I honestly, you know getting in touch with you and seeing your show and talking with you and then looking at the film, the last warrior out of all the films that Dolph was doing, um, you know, in succession, I honestly thought this was one that I was like, you know, David seems like a pretty cool guy. I think we're going to have fun talking about this one. So yeah, for sure. For sure. I, I, I like that. Um, you know, if I'm going to go into, you know, mid, you know, mid era Dolph Lundgren, it might as well be fun. And this one is, I mean, it, it has some 
problems with it that we're going to be uh, we're going to be breaking down and discussing. But um, I, I like the fact that you said it's fun. So you did have fun with this one. I did. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm somebody who. So here's the thing. I'm somebody who loves a ridiculous kind of bad movie. Um, however, I kind of have to be dragged out of my comfort zone to watch one. And once I'm in, I'm in, you know, and so I had a lot of fun with it once I was watching it. Well, and before we before we start discussing the cinematic gem that is The Last Warrior, as well as uh, <laughs> as well as Dolph Lundgren, um, I, I'd like to talk a little bit about your podcast. So, yeah, you and I first um, got in contact through through your show, Piecing It Together, which I was um, fortunate enough to be a guest on. Um, if you could, please tell us uh, tell us quickly about uh, about your show and how you how you came up with the idea of it, because I think I'll just say it right now. I think the idea for your show, Piecing It Together, is so unique and original. Oh, thank you. Um, and that means a lot coming from someone with the Dolph Lundgren podcast. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I'm piecing it together. The, the idea is that me and a different co-host each week, we take a look at a new movie and we, instead of just reviewing it, we look at it through the lens of what other movies inspired. And this way, instead of, uh, you know, just like uh, there's a lot of movie review podcasts out there and that's great and all, but I want to do something a little different. And I also wanted to be open to being able to talk about all kinds of movies. And so by the end of any given episode, we've talked about five, six, seven, eight other movies as well as the one we're reviewing. And uh, I, I think it, it opens it up for some fun conversations. And also you end up with a good list of recommendations where if you like the movie that we're reviewing, uh, you might want to go back and check out these ones that came before it. And uh, yeah, it was, it was fun having you on the uh, the Creed 2 episode. And um, I, I, I've been having a great time doing the show. It's been a little over a year now that I've been doing it. And it's just uh, it's going better than I really hoped when I first started it. I'm, I'm really happy to continue to grow the thing and uh, seem to just keep knocking out episodes one after another. And uh, I'm really happy with the way it's going, and it's been a lot of fun. I hope people enjoy it. Well, I, I had a ton of fun with you on the uh, on the Creed 2 episode, and here's the million-dollar question. Since our discussion on Creed 2, have you been able to check out any of the Undisputed films, per my recommendation? I have not yet. Okay. I absolutely. They they are on my, like, my infinite to-do, you know, to-watch list. I, I do want to watch them since that conversation. I know one of them is actually on Netflix readily available. It is the fourth one oh, nice. in the franchise. And I think, I think, don't quote me on this, but I want to say that the first one is available on 2B TV, which is how uh, you were able to view The Last Warrior. So, uh, and, and we'll be talking about that. But yeah, no, um, yeah, like, like I said, I, I think uh, piecing it together, I think it's a wonderful idea. And I, and I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, with the book Save the Cat. Are you familiar with that book? Have you read it? I have not. No. Okay, so Save the Cat is the uh, is the book that kind of um, I don't want to say it uh, it turned Hollywood upside down, but it's a wonderful uh, wonderful book. I, I think it's an essential read for anyone who is interested in screenwriting or anyone who's just you know a fan of films like you and I. Um, but basically, the the idea of the uh, of the story, or excuse me, not the story of the, of the book, is that um, the, the the writer pretty much. And the, the author of the book is escaping me. Let me find out. But anyway, um, the, the idea behind it is that there are really only 10 or so original ideas out there 
for mm. for screenplays. And so everything that we see hitting the multiplexes or hitting VOD or whatever is a variation on one of those on one of those story threads. And so yeah, when the book Save the Cat came out, it pretty much um you know, and when it, you know, of course hit the mainstream and the general public, it uh it really oh gosh, I don't want to say it 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 shattered people's minds, but it really got people realizing, oh wait a minute, um there's really <laughs> <laughs> there really aren't that many original ideas out there. It's all variations right. of uh, this one. But yeah, I highly recommend if you have uh, not read it or not heard of it. It is it is a cool read, and I think it would certainly yeah, that's um, really interesting. Yeah, I think it would lend itself extremely well uh, to your show, considering considering what your show is about. Very cool. Yeah, no, I I, I really should check that out. It sounds really cool. Yeah, and the author is Blake Snyder, actually. Yeah, so, um, yeah, it's called uh, Save the Cat, The Last Book on Screenwriting You'll Ever Need by Blake Snyder. So, um, but anyway, yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, before we before we start to start uh, breaking down and discussing The Last Warrior, um, I have to ask, because The Last Warrior is a Dolph Lundgren film, and so where has, where has Dolph always ranked for you? Um, just... Uh, Let's see. We'll go all over the place in terms of an actor, in terms of an action star. What What is your exposure to him uh, throughout the years? So, yeah, Dolph Lundgren is not somebody who I actively followed. Uh, I didn't follow his career. I certainly didn't not like him. I, I think I always liked him whenever he popped up in something. Uh, but, you know, obviously with a lot of his movies being, uh, you know, these kind of direct video things that I, I didn't really seek out or anything like that. Uh, but you know, when he, you know, popped up and things like Rocky and of course, you know, uh, you know, some of his other classic things, you know, Master of the Universe and all that, like, you know, all, all that is stuff I, I loved back when I was a kid, you know, and, um, but yeah, I, I, he's not somebody though, whose career I necessarily followed and, it's not that I wouldn't call myself a fan. It's just not somebody who I was following actively. And, um, you know, when I found your podcast, I, I just thought it was the most interesting thing to, uh, you know, to follow Dolph Lundgren, you know, um, because the guy has had so many movies. And it's like it, it does. It is something that if you really want a deep dive, there is plenty to deep dive into. And, um, you know, something interesting that uh you know we kind of talked about when we were doing our little introductions on the creed 2 episode of piecing it together is how i recently uh you know saw him and loved him in aquaman and, and uh that was like you know right before i really you know started talking to you and everything and so that kind of in a way put him you know right on my uh on my radar just as we're like getting ready to like start talking about doing this so it was it was interesting um, that there he is popping up in you know two major movies uh, last year, and uh, doing a great job. I mean, really, you know, stealing scenes. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. I mean, you know, to to the general public, you know, um, and I've said this on previous episodes, but to the general public, I think Lundgren is forever going to be known as the guy who fought Rocky. You know, when he was Ivan Drago, mm. uh, He Man. Um, you know, fans of the action genre probably remember him uh, as the villain in uh, Universal Soldier. I mean, but he has cool. done so much more, and throughout the uh, throughout the '90s and the early 2000s, um, again to the to the regular general public i think a lot of the stuff that he was doing i, I mean you know i'll go ahead and i'll say it i think most of the stuff that he was doing was pretty much flying under the radar 
and people really didn't mm-hmm. even know about it. People really didn't even know that it existed, but he was working extremely steadily. I will say that the the stuff he was doing from about the late 90s, early 2000s, I kind of refer to this a little bit as uh, the dark period in a way. Um, and <laughs> one of these films falls within that period. Um, you know, he, he's a working guy, you know, and he's, you know, collecting a paycheck. And so it's really no fault of Mr. Lundgren, but these were some of the scripts that were coming his way and um they probably looked good and sounded great on paper and then when he showed up on set case in point like this film um the budget would shrink the script would not get changed and so here he is he's having to kind of uh deal with uh <laughs> deal with the results and just kind of having to power through and make the most of it but yeah, yeah. um the film that we're doing today you had never seen this, never heard of it. I mean, this mm. was something that uh, when, when I brought it to you, you had you had no idea it even existed as well, right? Right, absolutely. And, you know, one more thing I wanted to mention about uh, what you were just saying is, uh, you know, this era, like 2000, you know, early 2000s, um, Dolph's peers really weren't getting that much to work with either. Yeah. So it's not like it was just him, like, in the dumps. You know, the, the Arnolds and the, the, the Stallones and... Uh, you know, Van Damme and all them, they, none of them were really getting much to work with. So yeah, I'm, that, that's an excellent point. Yeah. You bring it up. Um, Yeah. If you look at, uh, for example, Schwarzenegger, because I mean, I think, I, I think it was around this period and we've talked about this in some of the previous episodes, but it was around the late nineties period where the big muscly, you know, action stars that we have that were dominating the box office in the eighties around the nineties, mm. late nineties, they were starting to fade. I mean, granted, they were, you know, they were putting out stuff, um, you know, at the box office. But I think it was around this period that audiences were looking for something different in terms of not just their action movies, but their action heroes. And so if you look mm-hmm. at uh, if you look at Arnold, you know, he had done, um, the, uh, excuse me, End of Days. And uh, we, we talked briefly about End of Days on uh, the last episode. I love End of Days, but End of Days really didn't do too much at the box office. Uh, then he did The Sixth Day. And that one kind of tanked. And then if you look at, uh, and then if you look at, uh, Sylvester Stallone, um, he did the films, uh, Get Carter and Driven, and those barely even made a dent at the box office. And then if you go to, exactly. <laughs> and then if you go to Jean-Claude Van Damme, it was around this period, he was starting to hit the direct-to-video market around this time. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, you're exactly right. Um, I don't think, uh, you know, Dolph, he kind of hit the direct-to-video stuff before those guys. But, um, but yeah, you said it perfectly. I don't think he was given a whole lot to work with. Right. And so, yeah, this film in particular, like I said, I brought it to you and said, all right, David, I think it'd be a ton of fun to discuss The Last Warrior with you. Uh, you had never seen it. And I distinctly remember you also said, well, um, can I rent it? And I said, well, it is actually available for free uh, streaming on Tubi TV. And you were familiar with Tubi TV, yeah? I was because a film that I did music for, which is the other thing I do in this world, I compose music for film and uh, a, a movie that I did uh, a good portion of the music for called Bus Party to Hell is also available for free on Tuesday. So nice. Check that out. Listeners. Nice. OK, <laughs> well, if you need a guest to, to break that one down on piecing it together, then I'd be happy to to join you for that one as well. Um, but yeah, can, can I can we just say real quick about 2B TV? I honestly feel, I mean, granted, there are ads within it. That's how it's able to uh, be free to, uh, to um, uh, you know, to uh-huh. the public. Um, but can we just say, Tubi TV, I feel that it's somewhat of a, kind of an uncharted frontier 
among the general public who are looking for streaming entertainment. I mean, theoretically, if you really wanted to, because I think nowadays most people, you know, they, they, we, they get their films and everything from Netflix, Amazon Prime, and Hulu, which are all pay services. Um, but there are a handful of free streaming services out there, uh, Tubi TV that is one of them. So, I mean, theoretically, I mean, I'm not going to do this anytime soon, but theoretically, if you did not want to pay, Tubi TV is a wonderful alternative that is out there completely free. It is it is run by ads, so the film will stop about every 35 minutes or so and have about 30 seconds worth of ads. But um, Tubi TV is amazing, man. I, I would say that most of the stuff that is on there, uh, I'd say about 80% of the stuff that is on Tubi TV is largely kind of independent and there's a lot of schlocky stuff, but then there's also a lot of uh, really cool mainstream stuff that hit the that hit the theaters, you know, five six years ago. I mean, it, it's it's an awesome it's an awesome service that I don't think many people know about. Yeah, it's very cool, and it's great to have so many choices with with you know what's out there. Like you know, there was a while where it seemed like every service had the exact same things, but Tubi definitely has different stuff. Yeah, there's Tubi. There's uh, are you familiar with Pluto TV as well? I haven't heard of that one. Yeah, no. so there's Pluto TV, and then there's Hoopla. No one seems to ever talk about Hoopla, but Hoopla um, yeah, runs yeah. through the public library system, and they have a ton of stuff as well. So, um, I, you know, I'll just say to anyone out there listening, uh, and, and you are not familiar <laughs> with uh, Tubi TV or Pluto TV or Hoopla, please check them out because they have a ton of stuff that um, – that Netflix and Prime and Hulu and all those guys don't have. So, but yeah, looking at The Last Warrior, um, this is, I, I would put this in the category with a lot of other, you know, around this period, again, late, mid to late 90s, early 2000s, there were tons of these low budget direct to video action films around this period that all love to kind of set their films in this post apocalyptic world. I think mainly because if you think about it, it's cheap. I mean, you know, it makes sense. You know, if you if you're filming a movie and you want to cut corners and save a little bit of budget, make it post-apocalyptic because then if you do that, you can spend less on sets and you can also set it in broad daylight and make use of natural lighting for the cameras. And so, uh, Last Warrior is certainly uh, following that trend as well. Oh yeah, absolutely. The total total uh post apocalyptic and like everything you just said like yeah you don't need you don't need lights you don't need a lot of set design mm -hmm. it's it's a desert you know it is what it is yeah and this was also uh produced by new image um i don't know if you're familiar with new image david or not but um at this point this was yeah. the fourth film that lundgren and new image had worked on so he had a, he had established um a pretty uh, a pretty good working relationship that he actually still still has going to this day but yeah this is the fourth film um, for Lundgren and New Image for them to work on. And this was also, I, I will say, um, there's a couple, there's quite a few things that we have to establish about this film before we really, uh, before we really break it down. But this was directed by Sheldon Lettich. Now, are you familiar with Sheldon Lettich? No, I don't believe so. Okay, so if, if I say some of the films, I guarantee you, then you'll know. Uh, Sheldon Lettich is a veteran of the action genre, especially if you look at uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme's filmography. Uh, Sheldon Lettich is responsible for writing or directing, sometimes both actually, some of his most iconic films. So Bloodsport, Double Impact, mm -hmm. Lionheart. These were all Sheldon Lettich. He, you know, was the the brainchild behind a lot of these projects. And so he uh, the, the script came his way. Fun fact, actually, I was able to uh, to interview Sheldon Lettich. I, I sent him a few questions and he was he was gracious enough to answer to the, answer those questions. So, Mr. Lettich, thank you. But he uh, the, the, the way this project came his way 
is he had a project called Hell on Wheels that he was trying to set up with an, with an Israeli producer by the name of uh, Jacob Kotsky. And uh, Hell on Wheels actually sounds like a really cool concept. It was about military dune buggies that were used in the first Gulf War, and they were planning on filling, uh, filming it in Israel. Unfortunately, that project fell through, but uh, Jacob Kotsky, the producer, still wanted to work with Sheldon Ledich on something. And so he brought forth the screenplay for The Last Patrol. Last Warrior was actually the uh, the title that they changed when it got distributed in America for reasons that are still unknown. But he brought Sheldon Lettich the screenplay for Last Patrol. And he also had Dolph Lundgren attached to it. And so what attracted uh, Sheldon to the project was the fact that it was going to be filmed in Israel where a few of his close relatives were living, and also the opportunity to work with Dolph Lundgren really piqued his interest. And so here's a guy, again, veteran of the action genre, worked with uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme quite a few times. He actually um, uh, did some uh, screenplay work on uh, Rambo 3 with Sylvester Stallone. So you, you have a guy here who knows the action genre, knows how to film it, knows how to write around it. So on the offset, a project with Sheldon Lettich and Dolph Lundgren that could work. Sure. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So, so you hear some of that and it's like, man, what, and then you see the final, the final product of the film and it's kind of like, Oh boy, they, you know, what happened there? So you have that going in what you also have going in. I think in my opinion, this from, from everything I've gathered and everything I read, I think this could probably be the, uh, the biggest problem with, uh, with the film. Um, but this was written and produced um, by Pamela K. Long and Stephen Brackley. Now, I don't know. Did you look any of? Did you look up their credits, or their filmography at all? I only looked up far enough to where I found out that they uh, they're married. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. So, okay, so they're this married couple, right? <laughs> and the Last Warrior is their only movie credit. So, if you check out their filmography, things start to really make sense here. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> because I really got confused and lost with some of the nonsense in this movie. Um, but yeah, if you look at their filmography, they have written mostly TV soap operas and other assorted television shows that all seem to have these spiritual themes. So yeah, as a project for this duo, if you look at The Last Warrior then, Last Warrior certainly makes sense, because especially as you go into the third act of Last Warrior, you have all these, uh, you know, it starts to get almost kind of pseudo-religious and everything in that in that sure. final act or whatever. So as a project for Pamela K. Long and Stephen Brackley, if they're going to do one film, Last Warrior makes sense. Now, as a Dolph Lundgren film directed by the guy who did Double Impact, not so much. So, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, no. So, um, but yeah, no, uh, I don't know about you because, so, okay. So you had no idea that this film existed. Me personally, um, I had been following, uh, Lundgren over the years, you know, cause I was a, a big fan throughout the nineties and early two thousands. Um, me personally, I knew the film was in production, but it was one of those things where it seemed like it sat for a little while. And then one day, cause I knew it was in production when it was going under the title of the last patrol, which can we just say right now, the last patrol such a better title than The Last Warrior. Would you agree? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it at least makes a little bit more sense, if nothing else. Well, that Last Warrior just seems so generic, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, and he's not the last. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's just California. Yeah. I mean, there, <laughs> there's still so much more to the world. 
Yeah. So, um, but yeah, like I said, I knew the film was in production. Um, and then one day I was at Best Buy, you know, seeing, you know, combing their DVDs, had no idea that this finally got released. Um, and then I saw it on the shelves under its new title, The Last Warrior. And it was distributed by the now defunct label Artisan Entertainment. Uh, this is before Artisan was absorbed by Lionsgate, but, um, but yeah, that was pretty much uh, my experience with the film. Not, n- not, not too much, uh, not too much else, and not, n- n- nothing uh, that's uh, anything more spectacular than your initial uh, viewing experience with the film. Sure. <laughs> so, but yeah, I, I want to ask you because the film starts off right away with some narration from Dolph Lundgren's character Nick Breston. So I'll just ask you first. What did you think about the uh, the the narrative device in the film? I uh, <laughs> my my first thought is that it reminded me of like uh like a Simpsons parody, like like a McBain sketch <laughs> or something like that. Uh, <laughs> um, it was like just so on the nose, uh, '80s action warrior sounding, you know. Um, you know the the total total uh. You know, every line just seemed like a cliche out of uh, out of out of a post apocalyptic uh, post apocalyptic type of thing. Um, one thing I did think was kind of cool though was the music, which you know, as a musician, I thought it was uh, I thought it sounded pretty good. I, I thought the composer did a good job. Um, but I, I also noticed that Dolph's voice, his accent, kind of changed quite a bit here and there. Yeah, they uh, did I don't some. Know if you that. I did notice that they actually did some. Uh, so yeah, the, pretty much the entire sequence when they go out searching for antibiotics, which we're going to be getting to. That's I have so many questions about that scene. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, the scene where they go out searching for some antibiotics, um, Lundgren's voice is actually uh, ADR. It's dubbed uh, by another actor because sure. I guess he was not available for um for the dubbing on those scenes so yeah so if you do watch okay. it and you think okay yeah Dolph's voice doesn't sound right here uh yeah there you go so and if you've ever seen any of the uh, films within the past decade from steven seagal he's uh very familiar with the with the dubbing by another actor so <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah and there was a uh moment where uh well first of all uh a great line out of that opening uh voiceover me i'm a soldier in a world full of rules i broke them uh that that's that's great line great line um but also they they show uh you know the california breaking off but it seems like such a small explosion um which makes it kind of silly that it's like the entire state is breaking off it just seemed uh seemed kind of funny yeah i have i have a lot of questions and problems with the whole idea of it being an earthquake as well as this being California. I kind of question that cause it's filmed in Israel. So, um, but, uh-huh. <laughs> but you know, uh-huh. you said a couple things there. Uh, first thing with regard to the writing. Now I will give the film some credit and this is actually something that, uh, Sheldon Lettich echoed as well. When, uh, when I spoke to him is that, um, I will say some of the writing in the film, not all of it, but some of the writing is actually quite good. And I think some of the dialogue is is pretty strong as well. I'm glad that you pointed out um, the line that Lundgren uses in his narration. He also, when he is establishing, uh, when he's pretty much setting the stage for the setting and everything going on, um, he uses the uh, the term 400 seconds of hell in <laughs> in, mm-hmm. in describing how it is he got to this uh, to this uh, rundown junkyard where he's where he's stationed. So yeah, um, I think the writing is good. I mean that that is a strength, but. If we look at the narration, I mean, I don't know about you, 
but I've always felt narration, if it's, it needs to be done right, in my opinion. Sure, it, absolutely. But with this film, I don't think it's being done right. I think it's, it's in a weird way, I think it's just, it's, it's kind of a lazy screenwriting technique where it's telling rather than showing. And so it's pretty mm-hmm. much just Lundgren setting the, setting the scene for you without showing us anything, just dropping us right in. Okay, here's what happened. And as a viewer, it's, it's as a result, kind of boring. And you can feel the laziness kind of come through. It's so long, too. Yeah. There's so much. I, I didn't time it, but I would I would guess 15 minutes, but it's probably not that long. But uh, it sure seemed like it. It just it seemed to go on forever, that opening narration. And I actually had written down in my notes um, that if you told me that once this voiceover is finished, that it's never going to leave this location, I'd totally believe you. Like, <laughs> because it's just, it just kept going back and forth across what seemed like to be like the exact same area over and over each time they were talking. Well, yeah. And can we, okay. So, I mean, let's, let's, let's address it right now. So this cataclysmic earthquake has what pretty much leveled California and turned it into mm-hmm. an apocalyptic wasteland, right? Basically. Mm-hmm. Sure. Okay. So here's my problem with it is, so <laughs> the film picks up where to assume what a year after the quake, would you say? I mean, it, it's never very clear. What, what did you, what did you assume? Not clear at all. Yeah. I, I honestly could have thought it was like the next day. Like <laughs> there's really not much aside from the fact that there is like some established things within its world. Like, you know, that stuff has gotten weird. Um, there's really nothing else that's giving you any kind of timeline. No. And see, and this is the other thing that I think is, is problematic is, okay. So we'll, we'll assume it's, uh, you know, a few weeks to at the very most a year. I mean, I don't know, but it's extreme. Like I said, it's not clear. The world is a complete wasteland desert that looks oddly like Israel. How about that? Uh, <laughs> but um, honestly, I don't know about you, but I think they should have gotten rid of the whole earthquake uh, aspect of the story because the setting that they're using, look, they, they had a deal to film this in Israel. I get that. But don't you think it would have made more sense if a nuclear bomb had dropped or something like that. We're, we're to assume that this is the aftermath from an earthquake in California, yet we don't see any buildings. We don't see any decay. It's just nothing but desert. It's nothing but Israel. So I, I think like uh, a nuclear bomb or something like that would have made so much more sense to the, to the narrative. It totally would have, especially because, uh, you know, food and water supplies are radiated and stuff. It's like, an earthquake wouldn't necessarily do that. <laughs> um, yeah, and, you know, what? one other thing, um, I, I noticed that, uh, I was looking at IMDb for this, I noticed that uh, the tagline was, after the final earthquake, welcome to the island of California. <laughs> um, but there's there's earthquakes through the whole movie. They're, yeah. They keep having more tremors, so it's not the final earthquake. Well, I actually had... I actually had this uh, this idea earlier today before we started recording, but you know what I also think would have would have been slightly better as well is you know, like like we keep talking about, there's these religious undertones in the film that that really start hitting pretty heavily in the second and third act. But don't you think it might have been better if maybe sure. it picks up after the rapture or something like that? I mean that sure. that might have lended itself work too. right. Yeah, absolutely. That that could totally work. And I mean then you know uh, you, you you get into 
like allegory territory with, you know, with him being the last, whatever you're going to call him, you know, and it turns into like a, you know, a story with a lot of weight. Exactly. It, you know, uh, even if, it, even if it's still silly, um, you know, it's still at least a story with a lot of weight. To because it. that's clearly, I mean, if we want to go to the end, that's clearly what they're trying to make, uh, to make Lundgren's character, right? He is the Christ allegory in this entire story, right? He is, he is the last warrior, the last savior. A little Moses in there too. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, he, he's all that. So yeah. So the, the, the whole earthquake, the whole earthquake, uh, plot device, if you want to call it that and mixed with the setting, it just doesn't, doesn't gel. Um, so that's one of the problems going into it. Um, but before we get to get to the end, because like I said, when we first started talking, I was like, all right, David, wait till you get to the end, man, because it, it gets it gets completely bonkers. But, um, yeah, so we look at uh, Lundgren's character. His character's name is Nick Preston. Uh, he's this army captain on his way to his latest assignment. And his latest assignment, you know, with regard to his character, he's this uh, army captain uh, with a bit of a rebellious streak. Again, we don't get to see any of that. He just tells us that. That he has a mouth that uh, that got him into trouble, apparently, and uh, right, right. yeah, and so as punishment, I guess I, I don't know. He's sent to a uh, to a to work at a junkyard that houses broken down military equipment, and so yeah, the, his basically his military brass assigned him to this uh, to this terrible position, and it's here where he assembles his team. So we we look at his core team. Okay, we have. Uh, Captain Sarah McBride, who's played by uh, Sherry Alexander, and then Sergeant Lucky Simcoe, who's played by the actor Joe Michael Burke. Um, the one thing I thought was uh, kind of interesting is that you pretty much have three branches of the military here that are represented. So you have Army, Air Force, Marines, and they kind of form their own, you know, their own unit to conduct on the, the last patrol. I thought that was kind of cool. Army, Air Force, Marines. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I don't know about you. I have not. Yeah. Uh, Sherry Alexander and um, Joe Michael Burke, I have not seen them in anything else. This is, once again, another Dolph Lundgren vehicle, and he's pretty much going to be the only thing you remember. <laughs> yeah, quite quite a few of the main stars in this don't have pictures on IMDb, so <laughs> I was pretty surprised that uh, a movie that's, I mean, generally, I mean, it's got a pretty big budget, I believe, but uh, but yeah, some some of the stars definitely. Don't really have very big uh, careers. Interesting fact, I will say, um, the actress Sarah McBride, who plays Sherry Alexander, I actually really kind of liked her in this film. She has such an attitude to her character, um, mm-hmm. you know. So I, I really kind of liked that. But interestingly, um, she was married to the late Michael Crichton, and uh, yeah, her and her and Michael Crichton had a son together. So I thought that was kind of interesting. That is very interesting, huh? So. <laughs> So, but yeah, going, uh, going back to the rest of the crew that gets assembled. Okay. This is, this is where things start to get kind of weird if they have not gotten, <laughs> if they're not already weird. Um, so again, rather than, rather than showing, uh, we have, uh, Lundgren's Nick Preston character telling us about the, about the rest of the crew, about the rest of the characters in the film. So Preston and company have picked up a few survivors along the way. And they've kind of created their own makeshift family in a weird way. Mm. Uh, before we before we discuss each of these characters, David, what did you think about the uh, about the crew that um, that that is assembled uh, 
I don't know if you want to call them a family or not, but they kind of oddly have this kind of familial bond. Uh, w- what did you think of them? It, it was a, a truly bizarre little group of people. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it, it it was so seemingly going for comedy in an otherwise serious movie. I mean, they were total, every character was basically comic relief except for uh, Sarah. Um, every, everyone else seemed like kind of a very jokey kind of a situation and uh yeah they're, they're definitely they, they all had very um very kind of silly like stereotype archetype you know type of characters you know you had a, the the goofy dude you got the the ditzy blondes um it, it, it was yeah it, <laughs> I, was, I, I was surprised as they were starting to introduce them i was like wow this is the direction it's going well it's it's weird it's almost kind of like they're kind of going for like a gilligan's island type vibe you sure. know what I mean? And it's yeah. just, again, I, I, and I, I know I said this earlier, but as a Dolph Lundgren film, as a film directed by the guy who wrote Bloodsport, like, I don't want a weird yeah. Gilligan's Island, you know, a r- remake. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's just kind of odd. So yeah, uh, Preston and his company, they pick up these survivors. Um, so if we look at them, uh, I'm not going to go through the actors or anything like that because I haven't seen them and, uh, before and, I, and frankly, I don't care. Um, but <laughs> we have two tourists who hit it rich in Vegas with over forty thousand dollars in their pocket. We have a young Native American boy. Uh, we have a bizarre actor and comedian who also claims to be a doctor, cook, as well as a Native American Indian. And then you have Candy. I have quite a few things that uh, that I'm kind of curious about. Candy, but Candy is. Uh, is uh, Sergeant Lucky Simcoe's wife, who oddly refers to him as daddy throughout the film. Did this? I noticed that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was uh, very strange. She sings a lot of songs about daddy as well. It's so that's, that's definitely a running thing through the whole. Yeah. Movie. It's quite the weird motif to be running throughout this film. <laughs> But yeah, no, it's it's just like I said, it's kind of odd. And again, we don't get to see them picking them up. I mean, it's literally just Lundgren's uh, Lundgren's Preston character through narration saying, "This is this character. This is this next character." We, you know what I mean? We we don't get to see any of that, and so it's it's as a viewer, pretty problematic. Yeah, absolutely. It's not the way uh, not the way you introduce an entire crew of people um, through voiceover and with very little reason for any of them to be there but you know if you, if we look at our three uh or actually i wouldn't even say three but the so if we look at nick preston and then uh and then sarah mcbride so the the the, the character played by sherry alexander they have some motivation so mm-hmm. mcbride desperately wants to sure. find her former co-pilot and brother mike lucky uh so sergeant lucky he just wants to make his wife baby happy that's pretty much his only goal um and preston is we haven't talked about this but yeah preston is hoping to reconnect with this bus of children who he met just before the quake. And what I thought was really kind of interesting is Preston, they, they almost kind of gloss over this plot point here, but Preston is also afflicted with, uh, with a form of amnesia where he remembers only snippets of information before the quake. Did you, what are your thoughts on any of this? 
I on that must have been glossed over so quickly because I barely remember that plot yes. point. <laughs> like, I, they didn't really go into that much. It didn't. I don't think it really meant much to the uh, overall story. No, no. It's 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 one of those things that I I really you know I'll just say it right now. I really would like to speak with uh, the producer with the with the producing and writing team of Pamela K. Long and uh, and Stephen Brackley regarding this because. I, I, it's very clear. I think that they had a clear idea with what they wanted, with what they were going with for this. But I don't think a lot of that got translated onto screen. And so I, I'm, I'm kind of wondering. I think they were going with the whole idea of maybe a rapture and a a a, a Christ Savior allegory kind of thing. Moses as well, like you said, uh -huh. um, that all being kind of uh, using Lundgren's character as the vessel for a lot of that. But I'll be honest. So much of that just gets lost to where by the end of this film, you almost kind of wonder, like, what in the hell was this that we just watched? You know, I mean, it, it, it seems like it's so all over the place. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> but we're also introduced to our villains of the film, um, Jesus Carrera, mm -hmm. who is <laughs> so um, Jesus Carrera. Uh, and, and I'm going to try and say his name correctly, but he's portrayed by the actor um, Juliano Murakamas. Um, he is this death row inmate who was literally saved from death by the earthquake. And so since the earthquake, he's kind of established an army of prison inmates who are planning a revolution of some kind or some kind of new world order. Did, did you really understand their motivation and what their uh, what their entire plan is? Not at okay. all. Not, <laughs> not at all. Yeah, I, I there was a brief moment there where I wasn't even sure if it was same movie or, or what exactly was happening it just all of a sudden we were watching something completely different happening and uh th there was really no explanation of what they were for quite a while well it's clear that jesus and his and his crew of inmates they like i said they they want to start a new world order and they kind of want to um they sure. kind of want to reclaim the world after the quake um but it's never really established what their goal is and in a really odd odd plot point uh, Jesus has a talk show where a uh, uh -huh. where a bizarre Weird Al Yankovic lookalike is the announcer. Oddly enough, it's the same. I wrote Weird Al Yankovic down in my Did notes you, as yeah. well, and it's really really <laughs> odd because his his uh, sidekick or his accomplice, whatever you want to call him, he is also the geologist who predicted the quake. What 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 would you like to say? What are your thoughts? If you can help me make sense. Why is there a talk show in the <laughs> why is the yeah. villain putting together a talk I, show like I was starting to think that like you know was it some kind of a uh you know commentary on on you know the growing reality television phase you know crazy well, or something idea. but I mean that's kind of early that's kind of early in 2000 though I mean it hadn't really quite taken off that big yet um and, and yeah, I don't know. It was so weird. It seemed like something straight out of like uh, Weird Al's UHF, <laughs> like you know, like like just like a really weird, like a little thing that you 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 cut to really quick, and you just see this really weird, like what a talk show in a prison, you know, and then quick you're all cut off to another, uh, you know, another sketch. You know, it was it was very very nonsensical, and and yeah, I don't know, I don't understand who exactly was supposed to be watching. That that also confused me a little bit because I mean the the people were watching, but it seemed to be broadcasting somewhere other than in the prison. Like they were they were at least doing it in a way where it seemed like it was. 
Yeah, it's just it's I and I will say if if I can if I can uh I mean there are a few problems with the film, but in in my opinion I think the major big big problem with the film is that the tone is just completely all over the place. I mean I honestly feel like the oh. actors it's almost like the actors think that uh, you have one group of actors who think they're doing a comedy and then you have uh Lundgren who thinks that maybe he's you know, doing um, a- an action type thriller, but he also kind of sees the writing on the wall. And so he's, you know, kind of trying to play some of these scenes, but then you have the actor who's playing the, um, the announcer on the talk show. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. it's just, it's all over the place where it wants to be the supposed apocalyptic type thriller. It also wants to be a drama, but then there's just these goofy oddball screwball comedy elements that just, that just don't work. I mean, it's, it's, it's really weird. And it's not funny either. Like <laughs> it's going no. for comedy, but it's not funny. <laughs> yeah, certainly not on purpose. Anyway, not not in the way that it thinks it is. So um, yeah, and so going along with the whole um, screwball comedy angle, we get another really weird character that comes in. Uh, we get a creepy milkman who comes. Uh, the, the character's <laughs> name is Ferguson McGee, and he comes upon the camp uh, trying to sell milk, but the milk is tainted. Um, all right, I'll go to you first, David. Uh, what do you have to say about Ferguson McGee? Any and any, any thoughts? I I don't even know what to say. I totally, you know, great character again for a different kind of movie, like for a total parody or something like that. Uh, so just hamming it up, so just you know, totally like you were just saying, like different characters seem like they're uh, you know acting for a different kind of movie you know, just going for broke when it comes to just silly comedy and in what should be a really serious, uh, really serious thing. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and that's, that is what is, is so odd too, because yeah, so he's selling this tainted milk and the tourists happen to drink some and it's like this. And they have plastic milk mustaches, which is fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, okay. Like, I'm trying to, and I'm looking at, I realize this is a movie, David, and I probably should not be looking into this more, but they're in this wasteland of a desert and he's carrying milk on his coat in shampoo bottles. It's not cooled. It's not in a cooler or anything like that. And these tourists are just going to buy some with no questions asked and not think that that's weird in any kind of way. Like, why not? It makes perfect sense to me. I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. So, and what's, what's crazy is they play that scene for comedy. Okay. That, that's the other thing that uh, we're talking about how the tone is just completely all over the place, but yeah, they play that scene for comedy where, okay. Yeah. So the goat is mutated and, and Ferguson McGee has these, uh, has these weird lumps coming out of the top of his head due to the milk and, and everything like that. So they kind of play that for comedy. But then if you want to go later on in the film, where the tourists are saying their goodbye and they're begging Nick Preston to let them go. You have this, this sad yeah. symphonic music, you know, that's kind of, you know, you know, oh, that, yeah. that's kind of letting you know, okay, you know, Lundgren's making, uh, he's, he's making a hard decision and letting these people go. I mean, it's just, and it's like, well, they were the dummies who drank the tainted milk. So <laughs> why are we, <laughs> you know, I, I also back to the, uh, to his gross head with the, uh, you know, mutation and all that. There were some kind of cool practical effects, even if they were straight out of like a Halloween shop, 
you know, you just don't see them in movies anymore, though. So it's it's great when you do get to see something like that. It was pretty. Nice. Yeah, well, and th- they also see them later on when uh, when Lundgren is uh, applying the antibiotics or whatever. Yeah, you see it on their back. Uh-huh. Isn't their back like pulsating and everything like that? Yep, yep, yep. And and then the goat had it. Yeah, so, yeah. A lot, a lot of a lot of pulsating flesh bumps, <laughs> but uh, pretty nasty. So we get, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I think we get pretty much our real only action sequence in the film. So the tourists happen to drink this tainted milk. They get sick. So Preston, McBride, and Lucky, they make it their mission where they set out to find some antibiotics. And like I said, it's a we get a kind of a cool, uh, impressive action sequence where no stunt doubles here. It's really Dolph Lundgren doing these scenes. He is jumping from a moving vehicle onto a running horse because, uh, the horse went wild and it is, uh, it is dragging the character of Sarah along. And so Lundgren has to rescue her. And, you know, the horse, uh, uh, stops right before, uh, he jumps off a cliff and, you know, that drags Sarah off the cliff uh-huh. and everything. It's a really, uh, really cool, uh, sequence, but, Sadly, that's pretty much the only action we're going to get to see in this film, isn't it? Yeah, I, th- I think so, from what I remember. And yeah, the, I actually wrote down as well, like, th- this is surprisingly good during that whole chase scene. That was, uh, it was really well done. The music was good. I mentioned the music earlier as well. And uh, the music was really good in that scene. And, uh, you know, it, it was very action-packed for that moment. One thing, though, and correct me if I'm wrong, and maybe, maybe you don't remember, but right before this scene... Uh, it was that when there like a whole bunch of dogs went running and barking. Was that when they were chasing when they're getting ready to do this chase scene? Because if so, I just thought that scene was so funny. I had to write it down because um, they look like a pack of like just domesticated pet dogs. Oh right, and <laughs> it looks like they were like, who on the set has dogs at home that they could bring? for this shoot because i i think there was like uh i don't know like a beagle and there was a golden retriever and then maybe a couple shepherds but it just it was like a total just mix of dogs which I just thought well that's the other thing that i was actually going to write down in my notes as well is just i i have trouble buying the fact again that this uh this film takes place in this uh in this wasteland and they're able to maintain not only healthy horses, but healthy just animals in general mm-hmm. and these dogs and everything like that. Like, I don't know how they're able to maintain and feed these ha- these horses to where these horses are able to, to do these action sequences. Yeah, those horses are they're doing fine. They're 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 in, you know, going head to head with Jeeps. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> they're doing good. yeah, so it's yeah, that that's one of the other. uh one of the interesting uh, issues uh, about the film, but I, I will say, you know, I think um, while while we're talking about you know the the setting and how it really doesn't uh, it doesn't really sell itself well as uh, as being believable as California, I will say Sheldon Ledich, I think he shoots this film extremely well. I think the desert setting of Israel that they are filming this. Uh, the, the, the entire film is set looks really nice. Interestingly, um, mm. I guess ma- majority of the film was filmed in the uh, Negev desert, which is in the uh, southern part mm. of Israel. Actually, the factory at the end where they do the uh, the, the final climactic uh, uh, battle at the end of the film um, that was a, an abandoned factory that they found um, in this uh, in this particular desert. Mm. Um, but interestingly, um, it's actually the uh, actual location of this desert where the, the where the film was uh, set uh king solomon's mines actually i don't know if you knew this or not um but timnia is the actual location of uh king solomon's mines 
which despite all the legends about gold or diamonds were actually copper mines. And the factory that they used was in fact a copper refinery. Um, They also did some studio filming in the city of Java, which is directly adjacent to Tel Aviv. So, you know, with all that being said, I think that the, uh, the setting is nice and let it shoots it all extremely well. Oh yeah, absolutely. It has a very, uh, a very old Hollywood feel to it at times when it's not being. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But, um, excellent segue because going along with the silliness of the film, (laughs) uh, you know, we get, we can give it some praise, but we also really have to look at the film (laughs) as well uh, at face value. But yeah, so Preston and his two soldiers come upon a, uh, a former police officer or deputy or something like that. And (laughs) they, they raid his squad car and his trunk for supplies and Preston finds the antibiotics. This is one of the things, I don't know if you wrote this down or not, but this is this is something that I find interesting. I love how it's just a random bottle of liquid, and Preston deems it antibiotics. We don't know what kind of antibiotics they are. We don't really know what this is. It's just he finds this bottle. Yep, this is work. <laughs> this, will, uh, this will cure the tourists of the that- disease. There you go. <laughs> That reminded me of video games where you just get like a health pack, <laughs> you know, to, to restore your health. But there's like no like what what is wrong with you? You know, it's not necessarily for a gunshot or whatever. Like, yeah, it's like just a random health thing that fixes you somehow. Yeah, exactly. And you know what? Actually, I think your analogy is actually better than mine. But you know what it reminded me of is it reminded me of in those cheesy sitcoms where you'd see a character holding a can that just says soda. Or a can that just says beer, you know what I mean? It's nothing, you know, but I just, I just love how, I mean, and it's a really cool kind of camera shot. I mean, what Sheldon Lettuce did is he clearly put the camera into the trunk. So you have the camera looking up at Lundgren and crew as they're, as they're kind of rooting through the trunk, you know what I mean? And so, Mm -hmm. yeah, but I just like how he just picks up this random small uh, clear bottle and says, here you go, this is the antibiotics. And then when he comes back to the camp, he says, give half to this person and half to the other person, and then they'll be okay. Like, how did... <laughs> He's a pharmacist now, too. <laughs> I, I like uh, also when they go to take it, and does, doesn't the cop just go running off into the distance? Yeah. Which is just hilarious. It's like very uh, like cartoon, like Looney Tunes. Like he just goes running and like zigzagging out into the into the distance. Well, it's almost, it's almost kind of like they were like, well, we have enough people back at the camp. Uh, We can't add any more characters here. So we're just going to get rid of this one character. Uh, You know, it's, yeah, it's, it's odd, but you know what? (sighs) This next scene, I don't know about you, but this next scene really disturbed me. So back at the camp, the character of candy comes upon another survivor. Uh, This character's name is Jasper who's thought to be a military soldier due to the flight suit that he's wearing, though it's later discovered that he stole it. But it's, I don't know about you, but I found it extremely disturbing how Candy treats him like he's some kind of prize. And she even spouts in a line of dialogue. Now, granted, we talked earlier about how some of the dialogue works. I'll say right now, some of the dialogue does not. She even spouts in a line of dialogue. Can we keep him? Like... Which is absolutely bizarre. I mean, imagine if you're like, you know, you're hot. I forget. Are they married or not? But your hot girlfriend is like, can can we keep him about this like young guy? Like that. That's like so bizarre. Like the whole thing is bizarre. Every every minute of that is bizarre, really. 
And the song she's singing in the shower is bizarre. And well, she likes to sing these songs. Yeah, it's <laughs> bizarre is an excellent word because that's what I wrote down. So, you know, in another particularly strange and bizarre moment, uh, the camp decides to put together a party to celebrate. And I don't know about you, but I'm thinking to myself, what are they celebrating exactly? Are they... Are, are they what, what are, are they, they celebrating think? finding Jasper? Are they celebrating finding a bottle of antibiotics? But I just love how they're just like, let's put together a party and we'll cook something up. And then and actually the character of Rainbow Jones, who we haven't spoken about yet, who's completely <laughs> comes out of nowhere. But I, I just love how they're like, hey, let's cook something up. What are they cooking? Like they're in this how is it they have food yeah. and they're throwing a party to celebrate? Like, what is going on? Like I don't I think Handy at one point says that uh, she's going to have something, uh, something good for dinner if it means barfing and calling it a casserole. <laughs> yeah. Is that what she says? <laughs> well, and can we just say it is an extremely sad looking party? I mean, it's just and oh. I, I and I remember when I first saw this, I will admit this is only the second time that I saw this, which is one more time than you, I, I realize. Um, but I watched, I watched it one, one and a quarter, quarter time. Okay, cool. But it's, <laughs> it's really just kind of narratively and tonally. It's really kind of odd. So Candy puts on a show for about five guys. I don't know if you notice this or not, but it's about five yeah. guys sitting down in chairs and she's putting on a show for them where she's singing some Helen Kane, uh, the, the, the famous song, I want to be loved by you. And it's just, it, mm -hmm. I, I guess, I guess on one hand, Okay, I don't want to keep kicking this dog when it's down, but on one hand, I think it's great that the characters are able to find some uh, are able to find some peace and some uh, some laughter considering the uh, situation that they're in. But uh, pu putting on a party and like a little talent show, uh, I, I don't think is the best use of uh, maybe not the best use of their time, but it's certainly not the best use of our time as a viewer. I wonder how the actress felt about that role, like when she started. Like I wonder if she thought like this is this is good. Like, <laughs> you know, this is, this is interesting. Or if it was just like, Hey, I'm, I'm going to be in a movie and I'm just going to flaunt my stuff. I mean, so, well, I got to believe that when, when Sheldon Ledich and, and Lundgren, when they signed on for this, they looked at the script and they realized, and, and this came from Sheldon Ledich actually, that they realized that the script was not great. And so they, they, they were under the understanding that, okay, yeah, they'll do the project. But they'll also um, be able to uh, rewrite many of the scenes, and I guess uh, I guess mm. the the produce this this husband and wife producing and writing team they had it very clear in the contract no that they were not to touch the script at all. Um, what we saw was what was going to uh, what was going to be filmed, and so here you have here, here you have Sheldon Lenich and Dolph and everybody they're they're kind of in a tricky situation because here they are in Israel already. Um, the sets, what little sets they had, but everything is built and everybody was starting to get paid. So it's like, you can't really jump ship now. So at, as a result, Ledich was just like, okay, I'm going to try and make best with, with what I've got here, you know? Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I don't remember where this actually happened, but I have it written down in my notes. And so as long as we're talking about the script, uh, <laughs> I have written down in quotation marks. This wasn't natural like a goat man or a monster on the loose. Did somebody say that at one point? Yeah. <laughs> or was no, that yeah, I, I, I did not write that down either. Yeah, there's some uh, – <laughs> it's <laughs> – uh, Oh, my God. 
but but we do get some uh, uh some of Lundgren's characters backstory so um and we kind of mentioned it briefly uh but basically before before the cataclysmic quake happened and we can we can say it was a week prior three days prior a year prior i don't know it almost kind of feels episodic in a way like maybe they wanted this to be a tv show do you do you pick up on that at all mm. i mean did this feel kind of that i could see yeah. that I could see that. It's hard to say because, like, back then, like, TV wasn't really this big. It's, it's strange to call this big, but, like, it seems bigger than what a lot of TV shows were back then. Certainly, it seems like a TV show you could see now, though. I, I could totally picture that. Uh, because, yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a whole world that they're at least kind of trying to establish. Yeah, yeah. Um, so... But in any case, um, before the quake happened, um, Lundgren's character, he helped change the tire on this uh, broken church bus. And he felt a real connection, apparently, to the, the church's children, as well as their driver, Rainbow Jones. Um, interestingly, I don't know if you knew this or not, but interestingly, the little girl who approaches uh, Preston and starts talking to him is, in fact, the director's daughter. So um, I thought that was kind of cool. Mm -hmm. uh, but the film takes an extremely strange tonal change once again, where it almost becomes this uh, this gospel tale where uh, Preston had uh -huh. a spiritual awakening or connection to this moment. Did did you notice any of this? Uh, kind of. Um, but I was also kind of like too busy laughing a little bit when he said Rainbow Jones, which is just such a great name. Uh, so I kind of missed a little bit of that, but, but yeah, no, it, it was, uh, it, it was very, very strange the way that, uh, I mean, it, he doesn't seem like a character who would be that enthralled by, by this, you know, this whole situation with, with Rainbow Jones and the, the bus and the bus full of kids and all that. It, it it's, you know, again, it kind of goes back to what you were saying with the whole Jesus thing. Like it, it's making him out to be such a pure person, like where it's like, you know, who, you know, we really don't know enough about this guy to really buy. Well, that. and I almost kind of wondered, you know, each time I saw this, I almost kind of wondered if Rainbow Jones and the entire school bus of children, if maybe they were like a figment of his imagination. In a way, like maybe like maybe they sure. didn't even exist. And he knew the, the character of Nick Preston. He knew that maybe he had a higher calling or a higher purpose. And so he created this kind of fantasy to kind of help him find that, um, which I think that would have been a, a certainly an interesting angle to pursue. But no, they're they're all 100 percent real. And the film, which oh, yeah. adds to some problems uh, l later on in the in the final 20 minutes. So <laughs> and we will get there. <laughs> uh, and then so as we approach the third act of the film, we get a little bit of a twist. It's not the not the, the greatest twist, but I will admit, I I guess I didn't see it coming. Uh, the character of Jasper, who Candy found again, that's her that's her prize that she found out in the desert. Jasper apparently worked for Jesus and was running away. I, I guess, like I said, he was in the camp of Jesus and he escaped. So Jesus tracks Jasper down, kills Jasper off screen, which I thought was kind of odd. They just say that in a line of dialogue that they kill Jasper uh -huh. and they kidnap Candy. Yeah, did okay. not see that coming. Um, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. It, uh, it just it totally. And that all happened quite fast from what I remember. 
like just all of a sudden all that was happening and we were like shifting gears as to where they were. Right. And so at this point, Preston McBride and Lucky, I I find it interesting that Preston is pretty much leading the charge on this when it's Lucky's wife. You'd think maybe it'd be the other way around. But in any case, uh, uh, Preston McBride and Lucky, they decide to sneak into Jesus's compound to rescue Candy. And this is where things for me kind of started to like not make sense. Even, even uh, Sheldon Lettich kind of said that there's a lot of nonsense in the story that didn't, uh, that, that he felt he wishes he could have rewritten to, so that it made sense. But yeah, it turns out, I guess that uh, uh, Sarah McBride's brother, Mike, he is also in the prison compound of Jesus and is deathly sick with the same disease that had uh, struck the milkman, as well as the tourists um, who were, who are part of Preston's camp, I guess. Did you, did you pick up on any of that? Not, not really. Were, weren't they also uh, keeping people in line with heroin and opiates? Right. And you also have Jesus who's promising his disciples, if, if you want to call them that, that's pretty much what they are, right? He's promising them with the idea of water that he knows where water is, but we have, they, they don't have water yeah. yet, which again, leads to all the more weird questions of how everyone is able to survive and live in this world. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I guess at least they've got TV <laughs> to watch, right? With the, uh, with an electric show. talk show. Yeah. So, but um, in a, in another weird turn of events, so the children from the broken down church bus, they're also in the prison compound being kept prisoner. What is, let, let me ask you this. Cause this, I don't know. I guess you could say it's plot convenience, but what is uh if Jesus is our main bad guy, what is his end game? What is his goal in in imprisoning uh all of these children? Uh I think he wants his show to be really popular. That's that's <laughs> that seems to be it. No, I, I have no idea. It, it very very strange. I mean, I guess he just wants like an army so he could start a new world order, but that doesn't even really like you know, it none of it really makes sense. That's why I you know, something you said much earlier in the conversation about like maybe if this was uh you know, actually after like uh you know, a nuclear bomb or something or the rapture, like you said, maybe it could make sense. But again, you know, this is just California. <laughs> like for all we know, Las Vegas is still partying away, like no issue or something. You know what I mean? Like it, it's still, it, it's just, it's California broke off. Like that's. Yeah. Uh, and magically broke California broke off and uh, became a desert. Like I, I just find, <laughs> I find yeah. that where's the Hollywood bowl? Where is, you know, where? Yeah. <laughs> And no water to be found anywhere, not even on every single side of the, the state. Yeah. I mean, I honestly <laughs> think if they had made this the rapture, I mean, obviously it was low on budget and, you know, really no real special effects to think of. Because I think those earthquake scenes, that's all stock footage. So if they wanted to make the rapture, they could have done that on the cheap. And I think it still would have worked. And I think narratively, um, things would have made a little more sense. Maybe that didn't align with the uh, the writer's <laughs> views because obviously they have some spiritual views. Maybe they didn't want the uh, rapture to be. Invoked. Well, again, the film goes to comedy once again. Um, we have an action sequence that ensues in which Preston is leading the group of children out of the compound. Thanks to Candy, who is able to distract Jesus's army by going on the air and singing. So, I, I guess on one hand, they did not make the character of Candy completely useless in the film, right? Uh-huh. Absolutely. <laughs> yep. yep. She is very, she's very good at distracting with her, 
childlike singing. So <laughs> I don't know how far I want to go in that. I know, yeah. <laughs> but in in ultimate, okay. This is okay. This is where the film. I don't know if you want to say it jumps the shark. I don't know if you want to say it goes even more off the rails. I would say this is the ultimate Deus Ex Machina moment. Uh, Rainbow Jones shows up at the eleventh hour and literally makes it rain. So we are given no clues or no indication of where she was. So the, the kids on the bus were imprisoned in Jesus's compound, but Rainbow escaped or i guess they assume that she was dead i don't know what but she shows up starts chanting speaking in tongues and starts summoning the rain i wrote down holy shit the woman is doing a rain dance holy shit like what is going on <laughs> like this <laughs> i i i i actually started clapping so i i I definitely got my money's worth with this movie because of this scene. If well, and else. I mean, if you want to go with with my theory of what I think maybe they should have done, I'm wondering, okay, is the character of Rainbow Jones, is she a spiritual divinity? Is she a figment of an imagination? Because she's magically in different clothes with this new exotic makeup. So I'm thinking, okay, maybe she doesn't exist. And we have, we have uh, Lundgren's character who is rising to a higher power and saving the day but no again that's not the case everybody else sees her so she exists and suddenly we have this magical element that is brought in in the complete 11th hour literally deus ex machina saving the day i mean she's i guess she's literally coming down from heaven making it rain like i you know the thing that the thing that you're forgetting though is that there's no other way this movie. Okay, <laughs> I, I'm totally joking. <laughs> oh man! <laughs> but yeah, no, it, it it's so so such a strange choice. I so out of nowhere, and I I have to think that that this is like a personal choice on the writer's part. Um, like you've talked about the the spirituality of it, you know, before. Like the 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 writer is very in tune with this kind of spirituality or something, and they really just wanted to write something where they could fit that in somehow. Because yeah, there, there's certainly nowhere where it naturally goes to that direction. Um, it it is completely just just pigeonholed in in there. Like there there's nowhere that that came from that makes any kind of sense. I actually thought and I'm not sure how this was going to, you know, come to an end or anything, but I thought that you know, there was going to be like a twist that um uh Sarah McBride's brother was going to end up being uh the Jesus or or the other guy possibly. Um but the bad guys, you know. Um and he was going to be like luring them in for a final showdown or something like that. Like I just thought it was gonna be something a little more pedestrian like that, something a little more just like straightforward action movie twist. I, I did not expect total crazy out there. Yeah, well, everything that you said I think would have been much better um with this. But again, again, you have this <laughs> writing, producing husband and wife duo of a team. They were going for something here. And and I don't know what. So I, I'd really like to nab one of them for an interview and just um and just pick their brain about this project. But uh, yeah, Dolph, uh, his character, Nick Preston, uh, he seems to sacrifice himself as he blows up the compound. And this makes him literally the Messiah 
or Christ figure that I think the uh, the writers were were going for. But he's 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 yeah. magically able to make it back to the camp. So this kind of goes along with our theory that they're making uh, they're making Preston the the Jesus character here, where you know he sacrifices himself for the greater good, but he rises again, walks alone in the desert. The, the questions I had, I thought was kind of interesting. It's never really established how far apart the two camps were, as well as how long Preston was out there walking. So they they kind of make it sound like it was maybe a mile away. So right, <laughs> yeah. I said back in the very very beginning of the conversation during the voiceover portion uh, that if you had told me that everything took place in one spot. You know, I would totally believe you. There, there, there's no sense that any of this is really all that. Yeah. Another. Um, it's so funny. And by the way, one one line I had written down from that end scene uh, before it was revealed that he's still alive. Uh, I and I think I didn't write down who it was, but I, I'm pretty sure it was Candy who says it. Uh, she says it's just so sad. Even his dog. And then uh, the the guy says, "You touch that dog, you're one dead soldier." <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love dog stuff, as you can imagine. <laughs> well, with uh, with the the prison compound be- being uh, being decimated, the gang celebrates back at the camp. Rainbow Jones she offers to cook up some great celebratory food again. I question what is oh, she yeah. going to cook because they seem to be low on common supplies, etc. But again, I'm glad that they're able to uh, be as happy as they are. And this Gilligan's Island family unit are happy and content, especially Preston, whose faith uh, now appears to be restored since he found what he was looking for. And and Lundgren's character, he even ends with yet another narration, which makes sense considering the film started with him narrating the film. Only makes sense he ends it, but... um. Uh, he, he ends the film with a with another uh, hopeful and uplifting narration where he's basically saying, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but he's basically saying in a, in a somewhat roundabout way that he is going to continue forging forward, looking for other survivors and rebuilding society. Right. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. For some reason, that that's <laughs> that's apparently his responsibility. Uh, well, he's the last that. warrior, David. We have forgotten that. Yeah. He, uh, you know, I just – I didn't write this down. I just had this epiphany right now. Um, you know it would have been an amazing ending for this movie, especially given the name The Last Warrior, is if at the end with the, all that craziness with Rainbow Jones and, and the, the prison and Jesus and all that stuff, if it all happened to be in his head and he's just out there after the apocalypse or whatever and just being, a, being an action you know, hero – just out in the desert just but there's no no one nothing's actually happening it's all just you know what i can't believe i'm saying this why not i have always despised the the dream ending but i will say that would Uh make more sense and that i would i think i would like that better it would work (laughs) it would work for this one yeah for this one why not anything anything's possible well you know as we uh as we wrap this up, because, I mean, at this point, the film is over. Um, you know, like I said earlier, I'd, I'd like to just pick the brains of the writers and producers to find out what they were going for with this. But, you know, I actually had this uh, had this realization earlier today. I think it's very clear that are, are you familiar with the Kirk Cameron left behind films that uh, that came out uh, like, uh, like about what? 10, 15 years ago. I certainly ago. have never seen them, but I, I, 
Yeah, I know of them though. I, I've I've heard of their yeah, and I've I've never seen them either because those are not um, uh, films that I would I would seek out. To be honest, the only reason why uh, we're, we're talking about uh, Last Warrior is because it uh, because it stars Dolph Lundgren. If it didn't star him, I don't even think uh, this film would even be on my radar. But I think it's very clearly uh, trying to be one of those left behind type films because it's dealing with uh, similar biblical themes um there was also another trio of films that came out about uh seven eight years ago i want to say called revelation road that also dealt with those same type of themes so i i think i don't Mm. know in my opinion i could be wrong but i think it's very clear that um that the the writers and the producers they were trying to go for something similar kind of like that end of the world type story that's uh, in so many ways trying to kind of say all you need is faith. Faith can get you through, you know, even the the mm-hmm. hardest of circumstances. But then I think what happened along the ways is you have um, this company, New Image, who produced and distributed mostly low budget action films. They get their hands on the script. Uh, Dolph Lundgren came on board, and so they tried kind of eking in these action beats into the film. But ultimately, they were restricted mm. by that writing and producing team. So we got this um, bizarre, nonsensical hodgepodge of a film. That makes yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And and it does. It seems like a uh, a movie of compromise and uh, a movie where there, there are definitely different different forces at play from from production and writing uh, points of view as well as directing and who just want to make something a different movie than each other. And, you know, unfortunately this is <laughs> what happens. Get, things get all over the place. Yeah. Tonally when that yeah. Happens. So, I mean, but you know, Dolph is, is as great as ever in the film. He is in phenomenal shape in the film. Um, and I think uh, uh, mm-hmm. Sheldon Lettich, you know, for coming on board, considering all the circumstances that he had to deal with. Yeah. And I mean, he even said, you know, quote unquote, you can't turn lead into gold. And so it's nearly impossible to turn a mediocre screenplay into a uh, into a memorable movie. And so, you know, if you if you look at that and you kind of look at those constraints, I think I think the film can can be appreciated on a certain kind of level. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, it's it's not a movie that, uh, you know, is difficult to do. Okay, yeah, (laughs) let's put it that way As, as far as. Yeah, as far as movies that are not, you know, particularly great, um, it, it's it's there's plenty of, uh, you know, laughs that are somewhat unintentional or at least not in the way that they were intended necessarily. Um, and and th- there's plenty of just weirdness, you know, that really kind of goes a long way for for making it, you know, pretty entertaining along the way. Well, uh, as we as we as we come to the end, here is uh, so now we're at the moment of truth, David. Um, you know, I, I as speaking to you, I like to do two recommends. Um, one as a Dolph Lundgren film, and then one as a uh, as a film in general. And I know that uh, you have not seen a heck of a lot of Dolph Lundgren films, but I guess you can put your two recommends on both those levels, lumping them into one. It's totally up to you. But would you recommend this film on either of those fronts? So, yeah, I, you know, because like you said, I haven't seen a lot of his, you know, especially, you know, his direct-to-video type movies, a lot of like the few direct-to-video movies in general that I've watched, you know, and that's what I would, you know, have to kind of 
uh, grade it on that scale on kind of a curve, you know, uh, because it's going to be a different kind of a watch than watching, you know, whatever your, you know, recent big movie is or some classic that you hadn't seen. Um, and as far as that goes, I do think that this is more fun because of its silliness and its weirdness than what I would assume some like just eh, generic, you know, action movie would be. And so for me personally, I would recommend it for that purpose of watching like a, you know, something that is silly and uh, very over the top and ridiculous. I think that there's enough to laugh about in this movie. Um, and, you know, it, it does look good. Like it, it, it works as a movie despite all of its, uh, its flaws. It certainly like looks like a put together movie, uh, except for maybe during the voiceover part, which was just absolutely Getting through that was the uh, the yeah. Part. Well, you know, for me personally, and that, that that's actually well, very extremely well said. Um, but yeah, you know, um, on my end, you know, on the previous episodes, it's weird because even if the film was bad, I was still able to see some good in the film, uh, primarily with uh, with Dolph Lundgren. And in this film, I would say that uh, it's Dolph Lundgren and it's Sheldon Ledich, uh the director, who are really um, shining through. But I will say that. Uh, I felt in this one, Lundgren in particular, almost seemed bored. And I think a lot of that is because he was looking mm -hmm. at what was going on in the production and he was just kind of going through the motions. Um, so other than those uh, other than those two factors, I don't see much else personally that really um, elevates this. For Dolph Lundgren completists, um, sure. I think, honestly, if, if you really want to, um, check it out. But I think if you're going to compare this with uh, some of his previous efforts that he did before this film as well as some of his later efforts this one is uh most likely going to disappoint the story is just largely nonsensical nothing really makes a whole lot of sense tone is just um you know extremely wacky and a little all over the place the goofy comedic beats don't land and then the uh, the, the dramatic and religious gospel themes almost seem to kind of come out of nowhere and really stick out so I like the fact that you said that um, it's it's something kind of fun and kind of wacky that you can watch. So I think if you're going to watch it from that end, sure. But if you're going to look at this as something, <laughs> as something, as something thought provoking or serious, no. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so, uh, well, yeah, David, thank you so much for uh, for coming on and uh, agreeing to agreeing to discuss this one. Like I said, I know it was not. Um, at the top of your list because mainly you didn't even know about it. Um, but I will say if you go on to <laughs> TV, there are a ton of, uh, of Dolph Lundgren flicks that are on there. So I hope that uh, last warrior did not, uh, did not scathe you um, from checking out some of his other stuff, but he did. There was actually one on there that is awesome called the mechanic that, uh, that you should check out. He did that one. And then another one called direct action. Both of those he did about six, seven years after this one. That are um that that are a real return to form. Okay. Well, I I feel like I kind of owe it to myself to uh to check check out one of his good directed video movies at some point. So yeah, maybe I will take those uh, recommendations and run with it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, thank you so much for uh, for having me on the show. It was a lot of fun talking about, and it was like I said, it was fun watching it despite uh it being such a Nonsense. I, I I almost kind of wonder if the people at 2B TV are kind of like, whoa, what's the spike in Last Warrior all of a sudden? Like, <laughs> right? <laughs> Seriously, I mean, I I don't think they expected uh, it to become such a uh, 
such a well-watched movie by the two of us. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, we talked about piecing it together. Awesome podcast. Is there anything else out there that you're working on that, uh, that you want to give a plug or a shout out to? Sure. Uh, actually, uh, just this morning, I released a new music video called The Void. Uh, it's from my new, well, not new anymore, but my newest album, A Different Kind of Dream. Uh, but yeah, this is a, a, a really cool video I actually made myself. I put together with um, uh, public domain images from NASA's archive, and then I just put a whole ton of effects on it and uh, and turned it into a, a full motion animated video and uh it's really trippy and weird and cool and uh it goes to this spaced out track that i made big epic track so uh you can check that out on uh my youtube channel music by david rosen uh, youtube.com slash music by david rosen or check out my website by david rosen.com uh which also has links to that and also a blog with the uh story about the making of the video and uh, yeah, otherwise, check out Piecing It Together. Got a whole bunch of new episodes up. Uh, you can find that piecingpod.com and on all the major podcasts. Cool. And I'll be sure to include a link um, to all those uh, to all those things in the show notes. But uh, David, thank you so much for joining me. I had a wonderful time and uh, would love to have you back on. Great. Absolutely. I'd love it. All right. Thanks cool. For me. To everyone out there who is listening, please feel free to rate and review the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you go to subscribe. We always appreciate the reviews, and we'll see you all next time on I Must Break, this podcast.